Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at autismcinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I am joined by Ethan Lyon and Alex Wooderson. Hi, Ethan, and hi, Alex. How are you both today? Very well. So not too bad. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. You always say that, Ethan, and uh, it's so heartwarming. Um, yeah, I, I just got to be great. Just got to remain grateful. Got to remain guys. grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, this is good. We 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 are here today to talk about another film. Um, the the subject of our discussion today is a film called uh, Voice, and I'm going to pass over to Alex in a moment to explain what this film is about. But this is going to be quite an interesting episode because this film. At the time of recording, is not um, has not been released. It's not a uh, it's not pu- been publicly released as yet. Um, and we have been given this film as a bit of an exclusive from the directors, who we are very very grateful towards. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. Um, and really, this film is is we're going to use as a springboard to talk about kind of documentary ethics. Uh, but I'm going to now pass over to Alex, who's going to explain a little bit more about uh, the film itself, um, and then we'll we'll we will proceed with our discussion. So, Alex, tell us about Voice. Okay, uh, Voice is a pseudo-documentary. It's really a fiction, but it adopts the language and themes of documentary practice. Um, Normally we associate this with mockumentaries, but that has a sort of comedic tone to it. This is quite a serious film. It's directed by Anna Hjort Gutter, I probably pronounced her name incorrectly. Uh, I don't have enough knowledge of Swedish, no, sorry, Norwegian pronunciation, but uh, sorry, anyway, Anna, we did our best. Um, And the theme of the film is a documentary filmmaker from uh, the sort of established industry in Oslo, uh, discovering a collective of activist videographers or filmmakers, mostly composed of workshop leaders and young people who are from a refugee and immigrant community living in Oslo, um, in the suburbs of Oslo. And we follow uh, Rhea, this filmmaker, going to the workshop, which is called Voice, the collective, um, and initiating a process of making an observational documentary about the collective their process and how they engage with politics through filmmaking. What Anna, what, sorry, uh, what Rhea, the fictional filmmaker, uh, struggles with was the underestimation of how much scrutiny her process would come under. 
And uh, throughout the narrative of the film, we slowly see uh, Dwight, Sarah and Juan, the workshop leaders, negotiating a strong position in opposition to the um, goals and incentives uh, Rhea has. And this negotiation is quite a tense one uh, that builds the sort of dramatic arc of the film. Um, and we culminate uh, in, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Should we do spoilers? It's not even been released yet. We probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of I... want to talk about a little bit about like how it ends in a way. So I wonder if we should. Okay. Well, we can do spoiler alerts. Okay. Um, this is going to have lots of spoilers in it. Um, so I'm sorry about that. And perhaps one of the biggest spoilers is that it's not a documentary. Uh, I, I, I saw this film at Copenhagen International Documentary Festival, CPH Docs, and I didn't really know much about it. I knew it was about documentary ethics, which is something I'm interested in. So I went along and it took me quite a while to figure out it was fictional. <laughs> mm. And the only real clues that I was really given as a viewer was that some of the camera angles would have had to have been uh, staged or... Um, uh, needed preparation in order to capture these sort of unfolding moments where the workshop leaders and the director are negotiate, negotiating over whether or not they can film this moment. Well, obviously, if that was in debate, then the other camera would have had to be turned off. There are also certain moments where it seems a tiny bit staged and you can sort of, it's like a sort of quiet little conversation over coffee about you know, uh, one of the workshop leaders mm, surprising Rhea mm. uh, with a sort of challenge, you know, and those things happen very spontaneously. You never would have had a nicely framed shot ready for it. So things like that slowly give away the game. But this is not like most mockumentaries where um, it's sort of the absurdity of the situation makes it clear this couldn't possibly be true. We're very much... Um, it's stealing the language of realism and and do documentary practice to allow us to suspend any disbelief about the, the reality of this uh, situation um, in order to really truly engage with this quite important story, which is um, uh, who has power, whose voice is really heard when a film is being made, who is a film for, and the sort of extractive, practices that are commonplace in documentary practice. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll hand over to you guys. Uh, what, what did you think of the film? Well, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really interesting. And I, you're right that it's got this kind of, um, this this feel of a documentary that even the, even the bits and pieces of it that are not clearly not documentary still feel like it is being filmed as a documentary. So he still, there's, it sort of maintains this kind of, fly on the wall feel all the way through, even though parts of it are, are not. Um, so there's a little bit of kind of trickery going on there. And it is really a narrative film, but with a with a with a, you know, it's a fictional film, but with a with a documentary feel to it. And it is about documentary filmmaking. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really compelling. And the the performances were all very um naturalistic and 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 interesting. And the the exploration of the power dynamic between Raya, the filmmaker, and the the various people, the various workshop leaders, and the young people who were involved in the workshop, um, was really compelling, really interesting. I also liked the way that it sort of um, 
almost quite erratically in some ways sort of shifts between different bits of footage like sometimes we, we're watching Reyes footage sometimes we're watching footage of films made by the participants of voice of the young people of voice um where we're watching some there's a there's a scene part way through where we start watching a a, a a burning car and uh you can hear the voiceover of uh, of um the filmmaker of that who was filming that car to, speaking in fact the, there's a, it's kind of an interview that's happening you can hear the voices and then that shifts out and we sort of back out and we're so we're sort of in a kind of screening room with the participants and they're all talking and sort of debating about the merits of what they're what they've just watched on the screen so there's this constant sort of shifting between different sort of um planes i suppose of of footage um and it's not always immediately clear whether we are in Reyes documentary footage or um the footage shot by the young people or the workshop leaders or indeed the the sort of non-entity um fly on the wall-esque version that is the kind of fictional version i suppose that we're looking through so it, I really liked it for that reason because it was sort of shifting in and out, and actually that sort of relates a little bit to some of the discussion that they're having between them, between Raya and the um, the workshop leaders and the, the the participants of Voice are having this debate around what a film should feel like and what it's how it should be constructed, and actually they sort of seem to lean more towards this kind of less less of a sort of learned. Um, uh, filmmaking practice and more of a kind of intuitive um, feeling-based filming, really, that is, for them, I think, a more kind of true account of what is being constructed by the filmmakers. Um, and it was interesting, I think, that the film manages to capture that in the way that it is pieced together as well. And yeah, and I found it really interesting, and and it, it really does throw into focus the the questions that are, are asked around documentary ethics, but also it sort of muddies them a bit as well. It doesn't. I don't think the film clearly lands on one side more than the other. I think it sort of gives us an opportunity to um, empathise and sympathise with Raya, particularly towards the end when she's really struggling with having to make as many accommodations as possible for the for for voice and the the workshop leaders and the various people within this activist group they are really intervening with her and trying to change the sort of film that she's making and it gets to the point where she's she she's sort of losing control of of what she's creating and and she's getting ever more exasperated and i did feel quite sorry for her um but also you know, there were some very compelling points being made by this activist group who were saying that she's an outsider, she's coming in, and like, and they were asking questions about who is she making that, that this film for? Is it for them? Is it for her? Is it for her audience? Who are her audience? Um, and yeah, and and so for me, it was interesting that 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 the the kind of pathway through all of that led to a kind of kind of basically just a collapse of it all, and it really made me start to think about well is is it ever possible to do a kind of a documentary to create a documentary that is pure you know that is covering all of the ethical boxes ticking all the ethical boxes and and is and is um is there always going to be an inherent amount of power imbalance and ethical problems in the creation of any kind of documentary and this film seemed to sort of be exploring how those debates can maybe make the whole enterprise kind of crumble in a way, which is I just thought was really interesting and compelling. 
And of course, we're going to be talking with this. We're sort of using this as a springboard to think about autism documentaries eventually. And we've got a whole long list of documentaries that we're going to talk about in terms of autism. So it did. It was very helpful to think about it in that uh, it was a very helpful film to help us think about those problems or those issues when we start to relate documentary practice to to the filming of autistic people or autistic subjects. Can I um, respond to uh, one of your things? Before, I mean, Ethan, I asked you to give us your view as well, but I'd just like to say something while it's in no, my please mind. No, oh, please go ahead. <laughs> um, I, you, know, we, you know, questioning whether or not documentary ethics can ever truly go well. Um, I think this film is a fantasy of it working perfectly. Right. Because I think if you forget about the idea it's a fictional film and go with the, you know, suspension of of, um, disbelief, you're still left with this artifact that you're looking at, assuming that it's the film that they've made together and negotiated over and recorded those discussions folded back into the film. And so, you know, ignoring this mysterious <laughs> third shooter on the hill, <laughs> this like <laughs> this uh, extra camera person, um, like, like the first time I watched it, I had a very similar response in the cinema. I felt so bad for Rhea. I was like, yeah. oh, you're getting absolutely crushed here. Um, and you could see it really impacting her sort of sense of self, her the sort of moral justifications she's um, given for herself, you know, feeling like these topics are important and they need to be raised to the wider public. But her limited um, positional understanding of what it means to be um, a sort of privileged, white, rich, established figure from the industry entering into a small filmmakers club um, and trying to draw out these sort of informational knowledge resources um, from this group, but without really giving them a say in, in how that fantasy comes to, comes to light. You know, I use the word fantasy because like when you're making a documentary, you have this picture in your mind of, of what you want the film to be and what it's going to be about. And sometimes you work that out as you go along but it's probably totally different for the person who's been asked to be in the film and what they expect from it. And, um, you know, Agnieszka Piotrowska, this uh, quite interesting psychoanalytic um, documentary theorist, uh, compares it to therapy, basically, most documentary practice, suggesting that you end up in this quite intimate relationship where one person has way more power and authority than the other. In mo- uh, so this established figure from the industry who has access to all this funding to make the film happen. Um, and, you know, there's an intimacy that comes through that relationship. It's very much like a confessional in many documentaries. Maybe that's more more obvious in the films we'll discuss about autism. Um, and at the end of it, there's a betrayal where rather than, it's, it's really not like therapy at all. You take those ideas from the therapist, filmmaker, t- character, and put them on public display in, in alignment with how you see things working and how you understand their story. And um, if you don't involve the participant in how that story is shaped, then you're, you're asking for trouble in many ways. Um, and so here we have a filmmaker suddenly confronted for the first time with participants who know almost as much as she does. Yeah. 
or know different things to she does, but certainly is literate and competent and capable to challenge all of her assumptions. And it's just so exciting watching someone who thinks they know what they're doing being told <laughs> to, to go stick it basically like um uh, yeah so i mean I, I i'm sort of i don't like giving away the end of this film but i thought it was just brilliant um yeah sorry so that was my little diatribe no that's really interesting yeah 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 ethan what were your thoughts the thing which i took away from this most of all is how fascinating its conception of power dynamics are, especially in making documentaries. Um, and I must confess that while watching it, I was thinking of not only of Alex's uh, project with the um, with his uh, documentary, which I've had the privilege of seeing uh, a very rough version of, but also the Autism Through Cinemas, uh, the collective's uh, project as well. And these are, I mean, these are, subjects obviously we're looking at them in a very different context with voice voices more about um uh ethnic and um sort of uh, social backgrounds uh more than say backgrounds of disability but uh it's it's very interesting to watch something like uh voice and have this sort of incredibly literate discussion about uh as alex was just saying uh who controls the power so on who is the therapist and who is the patient and how do inherent biases affect sort of what forms a, a conception of um of what is impartial filmmaking and Rhea obviously considers her work to be impartial and to be um entirely fair and above board and uh Darit, Sarah and Juan um do very clearly not undermine but they strip away they they force a questioning which i think that she finds deeply unsettling and um and that's not to say that within the within the collective themselves they off they perhaps have their own interest they have that their own interesting sort of discussions there of power hierarchies who who decides what is appropriate material to be filmed what is not but it was a but as as an intellectual experience and as a sort of a sustained discussion, I found it really very, very interesting and fascinating. It reminded me a bit of uh, a filmmaker who I'm really fascinated by, Peter Watkins, who was another director who operated within the Scandinavian system later in his career uh, after he got kicked out of sort of the BBC for things yeah. like the war games. Um, and his work was a, a lot of this sort of element was... Um, working with non-professionals working within the community um his edvar his uh, strindberg film which is more docu fiction was entirely put together by a group of uh students of of secondary school students in norway um and it's this incredibly complicated four-hour thing um and they they if you look on letterbox they're all credited every single student who directed wow. it is credited they sewed all the costumes, they made all the, the sets, everything. And so that sort of fascinated me. Although, again, I think that Voice would have some concerns in relation to Watkins being the, the conductor of the train, so to speak, because he's very, very clearly his vision. And it's very interesting as well that the other person that comes up is Jean Rouche, who obviously is a, a noted uh, 
documentary or an ethnographic filmmaker and um, writer on documentaries, things like Moir and Noir, which is brought up, but also something like um, um, Chronicle of a Summer uh, and the variety of different documentaries that he, uh, ethnographic films he made there as well. So I think it's provided us with a really, really interesting jumping off point. And I do think that when this film is released, and hopefully it is released over here, I do urge people uh, who are listening to this to go and watch it because I think you will find it an extremely fascinating experience. Yeah, I agree. I, I want to sort of just put a bit of a question out there about, um, let's see, see where this, I guess, where this leads. I think one of the things I was sort of thinking as I was watching which which sort of contributed to me feeling a bit of empathy towards um Raya, Raya towards the end was that so we have the the, the three main I, I don't want, I wouldn't I'd hesitate to call them antagonists but I, I suppose from Raya's point of view they are the ones who are sort of pushing back towards her most which are, are the three workshop leaders the people who are I guess within the position of power as the leaders of the of voice uh, although it is a kind of community uh driven um project they are the authorities in that in that space and that is uh Dawit uh Sara and Juan Juan um and particularly with Dawit who she sort of develops a kind of relationship ish with a kind of rapport in a sense with um and, and maybe a little bit more than that there was a sense for me that I, I was got a bit, I, although I was kind of agreeing with them in the sense that they were pushing back to her methods and they wanted to be much more involved than she necessarily was envisioning them to be, envisioning them would be. Um, I, I was also felt like I was unclear exactly how, what, what they wanted to do with her film and how they wanted to actually contribute to it. And I, I felt like she was experiencing, Raya was experiencing frustration because I think she was perhaps struggling to understand exactly what it is would satisfy those three of them. And so it felt like the only way that they would be satisfied would be if the if she just left if she just abandoned and she just left and just stopped doing it because it never at any point did it seem that they were happy with her being there. And yet she does stay there all the way through and they they actually do sort of tolerate her and allow her to stay and allow her to film things. But then occasionally she'll be filming something and they'll tell her to stop filming because they because she's perhaps capturing something that's a little bit too uh, sensitive or intimate with one of the young participants. So I, there was an element for me of like, well, do, are they at any point, these three workshop leaders, are they at any point clear with her about what they what their own vision for her film would be? Um, or are they just pushing back for the sake of being... Of for the sake of pushing back, like are they just resisting her? And then there's a there's a slight question mark around what what da Dawit does, which is that he starts to at one point he asks her if he can come to her apartment and film her apartment and 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 see where she lives. The sort of idea being there that she's come to see them and where they are uh, that she's in their space in their kind of uh, home place, I suppose, and she's asking a lot of questions about them and who they are but has resisted having any questions asked about herself. So he's now trying to sort of break that boundary a little bit um, and say, well, why don't I come to your apartment, film your apartment and see what it's like. And eventually he does. And we can see that it's very nice and there's lots of art on the wall. And um, she clearly lives, she's clearly kind of 
lived quite a nice life in her apartment in Oslo. Um, but it also felt as if there was a sort of slight ethical boundary being crossed there by Dawit uh, in the asking of her or, or sort of of crossing that that line really of going to her place of living because there was maybe a hint as well a little bit of a kind of slight romantic vibe between them um potentially blossoming up there so there was a kind of a sort of question mark around that and i wonder what you all what you all made of that uh, i totally disagree with the um idea that there was a vibe between them I think there was clearly a focus on her reaction when he asked and she was wondering, oh, is he coming on to me? Because he asked in a relatively open way, like, when do I get to come to your apartment? And didn't really, she had, she had to ask him to explain what he meant. And then she realized it was about a scrutiny of her own privilege. And then the only other evidence that there was any sort of intimacy is when she's in tears at the end of it and he gives her a hug. So I think the idea of saying that actually is any form of romance between them is, is doesn't register at all with my reading of it. What I think is um, more interesting is how those moments, um, well, that moment in particular, her being threatened by him, uh, play into sort of old racist tropes about sort of uh, sort of hyper virility of black men and um, you know men a black man is as threatening and so I think uh, the director was I think was it seems like they're very aware of this these narratives and wanted to expose rare as um, being indoctrinated into them basically someone who doesn't believe in any of that stuff but is nonetheless coming from a world where that is everywhere. And many of the, uh, you know, many of the films that the, the young people are actually making are all about sort of racism and misogyny and, and their, you know, day-to-day -day, um, uh, interactions with racism in, in Oslo. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's my response to the, uh, the sort of, sexual undercurrents you referred to um but in terms of like were, was the collective ever clear about what they would do instead of Rhea when directing the film well yeah they made lots of suggestions but their main clear demand was that you make the uh, material open to the collective and we go through a collaborative editing process which they're all quite used to and have done a lot and even cite examples of where that's happened in the past. They don't cite them specifically, but they say there's been tons of films that have been made, edited collaboratively. And to say that you want to have a look at the footage and edit it collaboratively, uh, I don't think it's expected to be able to say exactly what you'll actually do and what it will look like before you get to actually engage with that process. She just hated the ideas that they did say. Um, and And... And then they said, well, we hate all the ideas that you're saying. So, I mean, and the entrance is very interesting conceptual debate about her loyalty to the film. You know, my film is not loyal to the collective voice. It's loyal to the film. And then they, and then I think Sarah, who is my favorite character in this whole film, she is absolutely ruthless. Um, that is, yet yeah, she has no, she has almost no time 
career at all. It's <laughs> of the three of them, she is. I think it's fair to say she is the most provocative. Yeah. Of them, and she is the one who is the, the most willing. I think it's the best one, the most willing to show no compromise. And I think the the, the bit which strikes me is when uh, Rhea shows the first bit of footage, and it's and you can tell from having watched a number of documentaries, especially documentaries made by, shall we say, state TV. It starts with that um, the the narration, which is way out in the in the outskirts of Oslo, and it's the shot of the 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 tube from the tube. Um, uh, uh, c- carriage, and uh, she goes. This is so cliched. <laughs> she's right, and she's absolutely. Yeah. And and as much as as much as there are certain bits about, uh, there's a certain bit that I'm not entirely uh, sure about. He, you do have to admire. He, 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 she's right. She's right. She's absolutely right. It is. It's using. It's a very clear. I suppose what. Watkins to bring it back would have called a monoform. It's a very clear form yeah. of presenting the information, and the information is coming from, as you've said, Alex. It's from a very specific point of privilege of like we are the centre. We are now going to see the outside, and so in that respect, it's a ve- yeah. She has sorry to interrupt that, but that that yeah. that bit that bit had really stuck in my mind of just the absolute distaste she shows when she sees that bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it was actually it, her primary point wasn't that it was a cliche. Her primary point was, well, who, you know, who are these films for? You know, yeah. uh, because we know, you know, yeah, we have to introduce the characters, but but like people in our neighborhood know what teenagers look like. Why do you need to explain what a teenager is yeah. unless you're explaining it to an audience who would never come to our neighborhood? Um, so maybe that was actually the second discussion they had or the the previous discussion they'd had about um, when they were talking about integration and the outskirts of the city in this pitch forum and the Nordic pitch forum raising money for the project but um, yeah the idea of the cliche was really just a secondary point to bolster a a very destructive sort of like uh, tearing down of uh, icons uh, um, sort of moment, but yeah, I mean, uh, Sarah's. I mean, it's quite hard to like her on first watching because she's so um, like unforgiving and mm. and. But the others make entirely the same points, but in su- much more subtle, sort of slowly wearing her down ways. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just like the reason Raya panics and and get stressed and exasperated is because she doesn't have good answers to any of these inquiries. But also to be fair to her in a way, she's also got a bit of pressure coming from a different direction in that she's, she's gonna, she's making this film for that's for the, for the TV channel. Is it a TV channel? Yeah. Um, and there are some executives and producers and so on that, that are uh, having a certain amount of input on this. And there's the one bit towards the end where she's, Seems to be secretly filming actually a um, a meeting that she's having with one of these people who says to her, "Oh yeah, you know we really like it and it's it's really interesting and and stuff." But we, what she says, she she says, "I'm having trouble keeping them all apart." Like she she this person who's watched this film is having trouble distinguishing who all the various different people are that she's captured on the as part of voice, um, and I thought that was a really telling moment because it was like, you know that that. 
the, the studio person who was even more removed from the situation, who has not visited the young people and the, the voice community, but all, is, all they've seen is just the footage that Raya has shot um, and is thinking completely in terms of how this is going to play out on the on the popular TV channel, um, is, you know, starting that the that, that, that pushback they're giving is like, oh, I don't understand who all these people are and you haven't really introduced them properly. And have you considered putting a voiceover on it so that you can explain things a bit more? And, and to be fair to Rhea at that point, she's resisting that. She's saying, you know, that wouldn't that wouldn't be right for this or or that's kind of just the way it is. And so she's caught in this sort of this kind of push and pull, I guess, a little bit and 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 struggles to find her own place within that and I think that a lot of that contributes to to how the whole thing crumbles for her um but you're right she doesn't have any answers to these people because she's not she's she's almost coming from a different sort of filmmaking tradition from them in a way and 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 she's she's stuck in her ways about how to make her documentaries and how to make documentaries that fit the profile of this tv channel that that are funding the thing um and there's there's no way out of this kind of labyrinth for her this kind of loop that she's kind of stuck in between these two kind of positions of power in a way yeah i mean i i think it's a really really important point you're making and what i hear from other filmmakers and other people writing about this issue is that um you know the funders and the broadcasters have so much power over the filmmakers you know either you have a job you don't have a job every 12 months depending on the project, you know? And so you deliver one project that doesn't meet their expectations and they, you're basically blacklisted for a while. Um, and it, and it, you know, what they're asking Rare to do is to give two fingers up to the people who paid for it all. Um, so you can understand just how nervous she is and how much she's w worried about this impacting her career. Um, and I must admit, I've been in a very lucky position where I've made lots of films in funded academic contexts where no one was over my shoulder, uh, um, sort of with editorial control over me. Or um, So it's all very well for me to sort of blather on about documentary ethics when I am missing one of the main constraints that holds people back. Um, but I do think it is, you know, it is... I have heard some absolutely horrific stories about how far documentary makers will go in fear of damaging their careers, career progress. And I'm not going to give any examples <laughs> at all, but they are really horrific. And, uh, you know, I think almost everybody I know doubts it and second guesses it and they're caught in between. Uh, and yeah, but it still happens constantly. There is change here. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about the the voice collective is that the the young people in that group are don't really have that level of oversight or pressure because they are creating little short films or short pieces of footage that they're then putting straight up onto YouTube or putting onto TikTok or and through social media. So they're sort of circumventing, circumnavigating that 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 funding issue it doesn't mean that it means that they don't have funding necessarily but they've all got smartphones where they can just do footage and they'll load it straight away and so there's a certain amount of like freedom involved with that and that's where this kind of energy of kind of new documentary or new filmmaking creativity is sort of bubbling up through this uh 
digitally connected sort of social media connected uh, activist platform that doesn't need any of that or doesn't have any of that pressure. So it's an interesting how that kind of power dynamic shifts around. Yeah, Ethan. I mean, that's something I wanted to talk about very briefly as well, is the fact that you can also, I think, read it as a clash between the old method and the new in terms yeah. of how, um, especially documentary filmmaking and, shall we say, more activist-stressed filmmaking was based. I mean, this is... Um, I mean, you have notable exceptions to the rule in terms of uh, collectives picking up cameras and making films um, or young people picking up cameras and making films, the 1970s and 1980s. I mean, you'd have collectives in places like Brazil who would uh, make short films about the lives of, say, metal worker, female metal workers in a, in a union, in a plant, and then they'd go around various pieces, various places in Brazil to promote the documentary and use it as like a consciousness raising tool. There's mm -hmm. a very, very, there was a series of very good document, uh, a series of, small documentaries of maybe 10 minutes that was online a few months ago which i saw was very very interesting but it's not the same level of like um fluidity and mobility that say um the kids in this have the kids in voice have so you know where they have where they can just post it on tiktok of all things it was a real it did make me smile that they're that they're using tiktok to put up some of their uh pieces of footage um and TikTok in itself is very much sort of a can be a collaborative process with things such as like the the, the yeah. knitting together of various images. Mm -hmm. And Thea come uh, Ria, so it comes from a much more sort of industry, from what I can see of an industry sort of classical background, where it's uh, more along the lines of she's been to a film school, she's done her time, she works for a shall we say a more anonymous uh sort of corporation style uh role and so there's and there's a very specific way of how those documentaries look and that's something we're also i think going to explore when we talk about a couple of the tv documentaries that mm. um that uh, about autism as well especially the two mcginnis uh documentaries because they are very much filmed in what i think of as a house style i suppose and so that's really interesting. And I think one of the things is, is that Rhea is, for, for Rhea, I think in her mind, thinks she's doing the right thing, but she is completely out of her depths in terms of how people engage with the material and how they produce the material. She's about two or three steps behind, mm -hmm. you know, compared to the kids who are, you know, shooting footage of a burned car and then have got the ability to, like, you know, uh, edit a voiceover uh, in it or you know, put music over the top of an image as well. But I think what's interesting about voices is that they're harnessing that sort of, the ease of use of those sorts of technologies as a way for people to, for these kids to make the documentaries intelligently, I suppose, not to follow basic traditions and sort of um, various uh, hidebound techniques, mm -hmm. uh, simply because they are techniques. It's a way of for them to do it um it's a way for them to do it so that they understand what the importance of music is why it does this so there's the scene where they take um a, a footage yeah. of a girl you know being harassed at a when she's a a um referee a yeah. referee thank you yeah. and they put two different pieces of music up and then it's the conversations about 
well, this music just sounds, the, the piano music is, this just sounds rubbish. Or it's they have a piece of rap music and uh, one of the guys uh, goes, well, you can't have this. This guy is awful and misogynistic. So it's a very, very interesting, I think it's a very interesting film about how media and how technology has changed our yeah. way of understanding. It does, it does also does a neat job of like um of, of sl- you know addressing not fully but addressing that that the the dangers around that those that kind of filmmaking as well because there's a there's rumblings of the being involved in a lawsuit there's a few pieces of footage where it's like this this maybe is problematic because it might be quite dangerous and or or it might reveal some uh s- s- the location of somebody who who doesn't want to be revealed and so on and so forth so there's they're having those conversations about that as well which is quite interesting but yes anyway you ethan you briefly mentioned the um the mcginnis documentary so we 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 do have a um a few uh uh we've we've between us have have watched down the years a few uh autism focused documentaries and we wanted to use this film as a springboard to talk about those so let's let's have a think about some of those then um uh, so shall we start with the two McGuinness documentaries? So for the for the context of the of the um, people listening, if you haven't seen these, what we're talking about here is the the two documentaries that were released on the BBC. One which was I want to say last year, and one which was earlier this year. So the first one is Paddy and Christine McGuinness, Our Family and Autism, which was released on the BBC last year, and it's about Paddy McGuinness, the light entertainment host. Um, and his wife Christine and um, and his children, uh, and it's about basically that documentary is just about him being confused about his autistic family, basically. And then there was a there was a there's another documentary that was released uh, much more recently, which is just Christine McGuinness, uh, which was called Christine McGuinness Unmasking My Autism, um, and that was much more about her ex- exploring her own uh, adult diagnosis of of autism. Um, so these, I think, are two very recent and quite popular examples of uh, uh, autism as the subject of of documentaries. But and despite the fact that they're both about the McGuinnesses, quite different. But as you say, Ethan, in your as you say, both done in that sort of BBC documentary house style in a kind of way. Um, but it feels like to me like that the Paddy McGuinness one was very much from his point of view or it's sort of from his perspective it's his voiceover that is used over the footage if i remember rightly and it's a lot about him just wandering around going oh my family are autistic and i don't really know how to deal with that um whereas christine mcginnis is the kind of the one recently is uh it, she's that she's the kind of the presenter the host of that it's her focus it's her focal point at that point and she is actually autistic anyway let me I, i'm sort of rambling now so let me just sort of open this out to you guys what, what did you make of these particular documentaries i mean i i was thoroughly primed to watch this uh paddy and christine mcginnis one um after listening to mandatory redistribution party on david's recommendation yeah i mean um Shout out to Amanda's Redistribution Party, a really brilliant political podcast, um, podcast, comedy podcast. Uh, Run by two neurodivergent comedians as well. That's right. Jack Evans, uh, ADHD comedian, and um, Sean Morley, who's recently uh, diagnosed with autistic as well. But it's a really good podcast and everyone should listen to it. It's brilliant. Yeah, very good. Um, (laughs) They were brutal. Um, <laughs> they did a deep dive into I haven't listened to it, so please give, give, me, the, give, me, give me the aggressive cliff notes <laughs> um 
I don't think they're fans of Paddy McGuinness. <laughs> but I mean, they, 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 I can't they, imagine why. They spend a few minutes on this uh, documentary in particular. And uh, so I was really prepared for just how awful it might be. And then I watched it last night and I, I guess that had taken all the fire out of me because it wasn't quite as hopeless. I mean, he's he really doesn't have a clue what's happening. And I mean, there's something so BBC about like, I know nothing about this topic and I'm on a journey to try and figure out what the hell's going on. Um, and basically the whole conceit of the documentary is him admitting that he gave up on his family and just went, went on tour for as long as possible in order to avoid talking about the topic of autism. Because um, he just was terrified and he was like reading about anti-vax stuff and just freaked out. And I, I just think, <laughs> I think, yeah, well, that's ludicrous. And, and in, in a way, uh, he got totally stitched up by just the filmmakers letting him be himself on screen. But maybe that's true of everything he's ever done on television. The one thing that came that came through the documentary, I've not listened to the to, to the podcast. The thing which came through is I do think they gave him kind of an, the rope to hang himself with, forgive the rather graphic uh, mm. metaphor, by, yeah, just letting him be himself and sort of allowing him to perform, I think is the thing. There are moments of reflection, but there's lots of moments of him putting on an act or trying to in my mind, hog the spotlight and make make it make it funny, make it lighthearted. And you can tell that it's a subject he's very, very uncomfortable with. Not because he, and, and I think in his most uh, vulnerable moments, you can tell he's very confused and he, and his lack of knowledge is harmful to himself. Well, it's harmful to his kids, but it's harmful to himself in as much as he almost cannot comprehend the conception of an autistic love. Sorry to interrupt you, uh, Alex. I've, I've suddenly just realised I've jumped in uh, in my very autistic manner. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I kind of also got the same response, which was that I was also expecting something truly awful and horrific. And there are a couple of moments where you do go, just, just shut up. You don't know what you're saying. and You, you just go off really badly. But then at the same time, there are bits where you're like, ooh, maybe maybe you're just trying to understand there's so much sort of it's an awkward documentary more than mm. anything else it's a very much a, yeah i mean he's, he's just totally unprepared uh emo emotionally to even engage with the topic up until the camera's there and it's like and i can understand it's a basically a commitment device you know how can i force myself to really deal with this um let's get some producers involved to tell me what to do i i, I should i am trying to be kinder actually and uh you know the big surprise for me is just how sort of like gentle and nice and uh helpful uh simon baron cohen was you know <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> i mean that was, that was a very interesting one yeah no. he, yeah. he sometimes he, in in sort of neurodiversity studies he sometimes comes off as this like like you know the first arch villain of the uh autism world you know the basically the architect of the theory of mind deficit um, model, which uh, accused autistics of basically lacking capacity for cognitive empathy, uh, which is where you get something like 
Paddy McGuinness 20, 30 years later thinking that autistic people don't understand what love is. So those ideas were not particularly useful in the long run for the community. And we have people like Demi Milton delivering incredible uh, critiques of them, like the double empathy problem. But let's not go into that. It's a bit theoretical. Um, but yeah, read up on Damien Milton. And yeah, but I mean, Simon Baron Cohen was great. He was just like really like considerate and patient with this, this, this man who was speaking absolute garbage and didn't know what the hell was happening. And he was just really nice enough. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's great. I mean, to be fair to SBT, he is <clears throat> like that when I, I, my heart always sinks whenever he appears at these, in these documentaries, because it's like, he's the first person that they always go to. It's, it's like, you always get to a point in these documentaries where they go, oh, I'm now going to go and speak to an expert in autism. And it's always him. And he's just sitting there and he's always kind of in his study and he's probably sitting next to a, a kind of model of a brain. And he's got all his books next to him. And he's like, Oh, yeah, but it, but I, I know what you mean by that. He's always very nice. He's always very pleasant, and very um, gently spoken and patient. And I've got no doubt that he that he's learnt that uh, as a way of uh, of talking about autism and and so on and so forth. But um, my heart always sinks when he appears on the screen. I'm just like, why are we talking to this guy still? Why are we not talking to autistic experts? You know what I mean? Well, um, Damien did get on Newsnight recently. Was Damien on Newsnight recently? I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I think, I think, however, David, you touch on actually something which is quite important, which is something which I've brought up and will keep bringing up like, a, I don't know, like a child endlessly bashing a pot with a spoon. It's the, it's the conception that this is very, this documentary in particular is very much outside perspective. And I think Cohen mm. functions as what often is found in um, BBC documentaries, which is that sort of voice, not the voice of reason, but sort of the authoritative voice. Yeah. And I think that his his reputation precedes him, obviously, having written so much on autism, you know, and obviously there have been numerous, uh, as Alex has said, numerous issues with 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 what uh, he said. Uh, we, we know there's also the concept of the, the completely male brain, which I think most people now look at as that's just a bit stupid, isn't it? Um, <laughs> many, many PhDs. And then there's just me as an autistic person saying, well, that's just a bit dumb, isn't it? The point of the matter is, I think that the scene with him I liked the most was when it was him and Christine, mm. because um, most of the documentary is Paddy, and it's mostly Paddy just not understanding, not being able to understand, being quite hidebound, I think, by a very heterodox, by a very sort of homogenous, orthodox system of understanding what autism is. And then it suddenly cuts over to Christine's voiceover going, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think I want to go and see yeah. Simon myself. And it's this long conversation. And at the end of it, he goes, yeah, I think I would probably put you up for, for an autism diagnosis. And it's a, um, it's a very, it's a, it's in a documentary, which is a lot about mugging for the camera uh, to, to be put bluntly it's this very nice quiet moment where it's like it does yeah. actually have a real important impact on the on this family yeah. and on the kids also and i must say uh we've talked about various bits of ethics and how certain filmmakers in the past might overstep lines in order to keep their careers um i'm not sure whose idea it was to make sure that you don't see the children's faces or the children's faces are blurred out entirely but credit to them for that mm. i'm not sure if that's standard policy in the bbc but i was pleased that that was the case because those are kids you know they they are below the age of 10 i think is i got the sense you know these are these are kids who at the 
who, and it's frequently identified, struggle a lot already with social situations and various elements. And probably having the cameras there was in itself quite mm. stressful. Uh, I know I, I know, I would have found it incredibly stressful. So the fact that they were given a privacy in that respect was actually very, very pleasing. I mean, I think it's important to remember that actually uh, a, bro- a documentary being made about a broadcaster is a very different deal from a documentary being made about a member of the public. Mm, that is true, yes. McGuinness has a fair am- amount of clout and weight and power, maybe not an enormous amount in the industry, but he's not hes not a nobody in terms of the television industry. He's uh, obviously got lawyers and he's got money to negotiate terms of what's going to happen in this documentary and is... Uh, and Christine is also involved in that process. And and so um, it's kind of hard to really examine the ethics of this film because the people who were involved, you know, uh, had such a powerful position in which to negotiate. So with that in mind, should we talk about one of the films where the participants, you know, were more at risk of extractive practices? Mm-hmm. I mean, by the way, I've used this term. I should probably mention it, it's just drawing from you know extractive mining, sort of uh, as a metaphor. You know, like sort of withdrawing resources from a community, taking it elsewhere, and then processing it for the uh, benefit of the rest of the world or a different economy. Um, yeah. So yeah, we got. I mean, we got Chris Packham inside our autistic minds, or is it inside our minds? Yeah. Um, I think that's quite an interesting case study of ethics going relatively well, where we have, uh, you know, Chris worked out he was autistic a couple of years earlier, or maybe quite a long time before, and this came out publicly about it went through a documentary at the BBC as well. We're not, we're not talking about that directly, but he made a follow-up one this year um, where the sort of remit is to use the resources of the BBC for autistic people to help communicate something to others that they couldn't necessarily just do through uh, normal communication methods. And so they hired animators and production teams, musicians, producers to build these uh, sort of like set pieces, these like music videos almost, or these sort of special animations, um, short films. Um, with the goal of being able to communicate to their immediate community or family something that they've struggled to say so far or, or put across. Maybe it's a simulation of uh, sensory difference or struggles with sensory overload, or maybe it's about what masking really feels like. Maybe it's about uh, the experience of someone who's nonverbal but can eventually type out what they want to say. And there was a fourth one as well, the football guy. He doesn't yeah, like to be late. Very specific on routine. Yeah, routine, yeah. So all, all of these like quite recognisable autistic traits that we've discussed many times in the past, but um, things that, that were quite hard to put across to their sort of community that weren't necessarily involved in in sort of autism studies um, or the topic as much. So I thought that was really interesting where it's crea- it was clear there was a sort of participatory ethos, um, um, participatory action research being maybe an influence there where everything they're doing is working towards benefiting the person who's involved as the subject of the study. And also was hugely helped, I think, by the by the presence of Chris Prackham himself, who who has clearly gone through a, a journey of 
the journey uh, of, of, of coming to understand himself as an autistic person and has been doing that for a number of years and is, is someone I've always admired and I thought I've always, has always been a, an interesting person. And there's a lot of uh, him interacting with these subjects and, 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 and talking them through the process and talking to them about their experiences. And he does it in such a way where, you know, he's, there's a, there's an element of him looking a little bit, he's not, he's not shying away from saying when he's uncomfortable with a situation that he's in or, or, or if he recognizes that the other person is, is finding something difficult. Like if they, he meets one of them in a bar or something, doesn't he? And says like, Oh, it's a bit noisy in here. And, and, you know, so he's acknowledged. So it's nice that he's got that, that rapport and that acknowledgement, which I know, I know we're not talking about the, um, the, the Christine McGuinness one, but there was the, the Christine McGuinness's documentary from earlier this year was there was a similar dynamic there because she's this autistic person who was talking to other autistic people. And there was a kind of shared communal uh, experience there, which was good. And I thought Packham navigated that well. It was really that both of them were very interesting uh, episodes and they very moving as well. I, I, I did sort of think I, I was asking the question of like, What's interesting about documentaries is that they they more so than kind of like feature films and, and and narrative films, fiction films, is that they ask the questions of what happens beyond what you see within the well, beyond what is captured. It's like you're always asking questions about the presence of the the documentarian, the setup beforehand, and especially what what happens after. And I wonder about. There's nothing really specifically said about this in the in the program. I don't remember that I don't remember, but about like what has been the kind of post-documentary care, if you like, with these with the subjects. Because most of them they all seem quite um very satisfied and happy with what they were doing. But I was thinking a lot, particularly about I think his name was Anton, and he was the um he was the sort of uh I think he was an aspiring kind of rapper and uh, mm. he was a media student and uh, he was very shy and a lot of the, uh, we got a sort of reflection on the fact that he spent a lot of time alone and he was in this kind of college environment, but was sitting alone quite a lot of the time and was struggling to interact with his classmates and so on. And then when he made this film, all his classmates came to see it and it was all sort of screened in this kind of big surround sound sort of um, a kind of, this extended screens around them and and it was all about his sensitivity to noise and so on but the my thoughts at that point were that the the age the ages of these the audience and the his sort of peers and friends around him in this college are at that age where i just thought i just felt there was the kind of the potential for that to go in the bad direction like after all the cameras had left i sort of just felt like he was perhaps vulnerable as a kind of bullying target and i wondered about like to what extent does to what extent does the, the 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 bbc and the documentary makers have to kind of safeguard these people once they've sort of like highlighted what their problem is do you know what i mean like it's sort of like okay they've, they've now so exuberantly highlighted that this person has a real sensitivity to noise if someone who is not really on side with him was or, or you know someone of that age might exploit that or I, I don't know i think what i'm trying to say is by creating them as this documentary subject and sort of putting them out on screen is there a question mark there about opening them up to like vulnerabilities and opening them up to um difficulties in the future i think that's what i'm trying to say is there a, is there an ethical question there yeah 
Definitely there is. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to, I was trying to articulate that in a fair way. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about because speaking about it presumes a certain degree of vulnerability in the participants we're talk- as if they can't look after themselves or, you know, so I, I'm hesitant in sort of making assertions. I can recall, you know, before starting the PhD, talking to a friend of mine who's got a son who's an adult, uh, he's autistic and uh, very sort of uh, sociable and exuberant guy who likes going out and talking to lots of people, but it gets him in trouble sometimes um, when he sort of walks in with a crowd that maybe is not the most uh, friendly. And, you know, there are people who are willing to exploit uh, others who are vulnerable. Um, And he just said, well, you know, for those kind of reasons, it would just be not a great idea for this person to ever be put into a really public sphere and which made total sense. And it wasn't something I'd really thought about before. And I guess you're basically raising the same issue. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the one thing I would say is that the two schools that appeared in the two documentaries we've mentioned so far were presented like utopias. Yeah. Uh, which can't possibly be true. No, exactly. <laughs> no. So, but, you know, how else do you get permission from the headmistress? Well, exactly. I think you're right, sort of bringing up this idea of the utopia. There was just a feeling of it all being a bit too perfect, everything being a bit too perfect for each one of their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, bringing, that in, bringing that in as well, we were talking earlier about Paddy McGuinness and how he does have a fair bit of clout. And so he can adjust, shall we say, adjust things to, he can have things the way he wants them, you know, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things we should also mention is that in the first episode, there's a very interesting young man who is nonverbal. Yeah. Uh, who is, I think, about 17 or 18 years old and speaks through a um, device. But he is the son of Ken Bruce, who I'm sure needs no introduction to those um, listening. So, again, we sort of return to those issues of how do we represent a situation, shall we say, that's not entirely within the control of the subjects, especially someone like um, Anton, but also the, this other gentleman whose name I have completely uh, forgotten, uh, wherein, you know, there is a very clear position, that there is an authority figure behind them, shall we say, that that would like to be well seen. And I'm certain, uh, Alex, that you have in your documentary work encountered individuals who just say wish wish to have a certain image of themselves put across, even though they are not necessarily the autistic subject of your work. So I think there's there's interesting discussions there about again who controls the power in the documentary setting. Sorry, no, I didn't understand what you meant there, Ethan. Um, how do I phrase it? Obviously, you're co- you're coming at your work talking about autism from not not the same places, say Rhea or. Uh, McGuinness or someone along those lines, but you're working with these sort of autistic communities and you may be encountering people within those communities who want a um, a certain image of themselves put across as beneficial, utopian, whatever. And so it's, I suppose it's about negotiating those various demands as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, no, that's not happened. Really? Has it not? <laughs> no, no. That is, but, I mean, oh, credit to you, though. That's, that's, that's <laughs> damn good, then. But your film, I mean, you're drawing on autism film, you're questioning yourself, aren't you, a lot? In, in, yes, in a lot that's of very that. true. You're positioning yourself as the question mark in, in, in that film. It's like, yeah, how, yeah. how do you approach this? That's this the way true. that you're doing, doing it with mm. that. Well, uh, yeah, I felt very much like Rhea and Sarah 
yeah. in, in drawing on autism. I was trying to play both characters. Yeah. Uh, while the participant was like, sure, I'll help. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to be fair, that's one of the things I really like about your documentary is the fact that you are so actively questioning yourself as much and you are willing to let other people... I mean, you include a lot of footage of certain participants being quite... Um, not accusatory, but certainly quite questioning of your merit, of your interests and your point of view and how you are presenting certain parts of the footage, which I found really, really interesting and actually quite refreshing, considering that normally you, you do get something a lot more anonymous. I, 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 um, I've come to accept that this is a film and a tactic or an approach born out of psychotic trauma. <laughs> Like, I mean, I mean, a total collapse of your identity and building yourself up from scratch after, after a psychosis, uh, really makes you quite get comfortable with questioning yourself. <laughs> so would you say you are the subject of your documentaries? That's a good question. Well, I think it's hard to make a film without putting yourself in it. I just like to be honest about it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's one of the things that comes up in, in, in voice, isn't it? About how this kind of question mark between ob being objective and being subjective and, and the resistance that Rhea has to putting herself in her own film. Uh, and yet they doubt it, uh, you know, is sort of suggesting that she, she sort of should really. And, and or, you know, in, in, in going to her house and so on and, and filming her private uh, uh, environment, he's trying to break that. Are you trying to sort of make her as much a subject of that film as mm. as she is trying to do with them? So it's interesting, and she pushes back on that, saying she doesn't want that because of journalistic integrity. That you've got to keep a certain amount of objective distance from the things that you're filming to in to uh, keep this integrity going. But then which, there's like, well, well, what integrity? Well, and why? And and yeah, which institutions' integrity are you protecting? Yeah, exactly. my thought on that was if she did have to, because she never quite gets the heart of why she's interested in the subject itself. I got the sense that if she was to really be pressed for an answer on why she liked, why she was so interested in the collective and everything, she'd have to give an answer that was that made her look particularly bad. I think is the thing. I think either mm -hmm. in terms of it being vain self-interest. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think, you know, it's a critique of um, sort of bourgeois liberalism. You know, she she wants to be on the right side of history, doesn't like all these racists that she hears about on the news. And so wants to show, you know, that immigrants and Muslims aren't all that bad. I mean, and it's just such a, a biased starting position. And, she, and, and the other reason is she thinks that she can convince a broadcaster to give her a lot of money to help promote this ideological position. You know, I think the word integration is really, really important in, and Sarah latched onto that very, very quickly. Oh, oh actually, maybe it was uh, Dwight, one of them, I don't know. Yeah, but the word integration is very- Yeah, they were like, we're not here to help integrate these kids. And she's like, well, well what are you here to do then? He's like, make films. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're making political films. <laughs> it's not, it's not about becoming Norwegian and, right, yeah. you know, sort of trying to develop some sort of color blindness. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, Scandinavian, uh, politics, there are quite a lot of subtle differences in the approaches, um, in, in the UK. I think a consequence of our brutal imperialism is that contemporary UK is actually quite 
a dynamic multicultural society, but there's still a very strong sense of a cosmopolitan ideal, or maybe that's not the right word, but a sort of like, you know, socialist democratic states that invite people to not invite, but accept uh, refugees and immigrants. And I'm, I'm just saying that, that, I mean, there's, there is this sort of very strong focus on integration essentially. And it's a very, very controversial political topic, uh, a dividing line, but it seems to have landed in a different way in Scandinavia than it did in the UK. I'd agree with that. I think it's, that's certainly something that I was thinking of as I was watching the film as well, was those various discussions of integration and assi- and assimilation as well in relation to a, more, a sort of a more openly multicultural society that we live in here. We we certainly have our problems too. Yes, oh, we do. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, trust me. I, you're not. Oh gonna, yeah, you're not going to catch me saying otherwise. Mm. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if we have time to talk about any of the other documentaries nah. we listed. Uh, how about headlines on uh, I Am Greta? Oh yeah, I Am Greta. I, I sort of revisited I Am Greta. I Am Greta was a film from 2020 uh, by Nathan Grossman. I thought it was quite interesting for this topic, for this discussion. So I Am Greta is a, a you can watch it freely on, on the iPlayer actually. I would recommend it. I, I quite liked it. It's um, a documentary about Greta Thunberg and about her from the very early days of her, her school strike uh, all the way through to kind of her big speeches at the UN and so on and so forth. And her um, particularly focuses on her, her journey, her sort of the boat uh, journey that she took from Plymouth, I believe, all the way through to New York and crossing the Atlantic and so on. So it's kind of about that. And it's kind of interesting because it's th- this filmmaker is um, someone who has been following her for a long, long time, ever since the school strike. So it's been someone she, she's been kind of quite, familiar and comfortable with for a long time. I found it quite an interesting uh, documentary because I I watched it thinking to myself, when will autism be, when and how will autism be addressed here? Because it's not necessarily a documentary about autism. It's about Greta Thunberg. It's about her activism. It's about her becoming the person that she became. But it it is quite an intimate portrayal of her. And and I thought, uh, how are they going to deal with the autism thing, basically? And I think they deal with it quite well. It, 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 it takes a while for them to sort of acknowledge it and and there's a brief explanation and they sort of talk a little bit about it. Um, she herself explains a bit about some of the struggles that she has, her shutdowns and her difficulty with, she has a bit of an eating disorder, I think, at one point as well. And so difficulties with, with food and so on. Um, but what I like about I Am Greta, the one thing that I, I really like that I'd like to just sort of mention really is that it sort of allows, it was a way of allowing us to see Greta Thunberg from a slightly different perspective. Like I think that the, the impression that the people have of her at the moment is or predominantly is of this kind of very serious, very focused, quite angry um, child, young woman who, you know, is famous for making these impassioned speeches and I mean, a very sullen look about her and so on and so forth, which I think contributes somewhat to the mythology around her autism and around what autism is like. But when you watch this film, there's a lot more footage of her in different emotional states, particularly 
just like laughing and giggling and and joking around which is which was a really lovely thing to sort of see but then there's also a few, couple of moments where the filmmaker is filming her uh, stimming and she does she sort of dances she sort of gets up and moves her limbs around quite a lot and swings her head around and she's sort of dancing um and i found those moments quite it sort of like dwells on those moments for a bit and i found those quite moving and quite interesting because it just showed a a different side of this person uh who is kind of so her profile is so kind of tied up in this kind of autistic angry young activist person but actually you get this you do get to see her at, at, at the more full of full extent of her and there are also moments where she's upset and crying and stressed and and i thought those bits were valuable too i just thought it was interesting because she clearly has a very good relationship with the filmmaker with the uh, with uh, nathan grossman someone who she's presumably a friend with but someone who's known her for a long time and i got the impression from that film that she had a she did have something of a kind of editorial input into it and you know was happy with the with the end result and so on so i think maybe the for me that's quite a good example of a sort of good relationship between a kind of director and subject as far as i know i mean i don't know much more about the film beyond what i did beyond just watching it but it looked like it was quite a positive one so i'm a fan of that film whereas i chose to watch the exact opposite and i must I, I know we're running out of time, but I must briefly bring it up because if I had to feel, if I had to watch this, I have to make you aware of it. And this is, <laughs> I think we're alone now, which is the almost exact opposite of um, I Am Greta. It is a documentary from 2008. It is about uh, two people who are, would be called obsessive fans of a particular pop star, Tiffany, from the late 1980s. Or one of them, uh, a gentleman called Jeff Turner, is on the spectrum and a great deal of the conversation is about him being on the spectrum and that contributing somewhat to his um very disturbing predilection towards this particular pop star he, he follows her around to the point where she has numerous restraining orders against him he collects everything about her he can only talk about her it's uh you see numerous uh, uh, uh sequences where he is only able to speak about her. The thing which comes to mind with it, however, is that there is a sense of very limited ethics in the film. Uh, there's there's a lot of manipulation of the, the subject matter in terms of how uh, conversations are edited, how reaction shots are edited, to present this sort of image of people finding this man and his discussion just very off-putting there's a very terrifying there's a slightly terrifying one where he is rambling about something to do with tiffany at a at a beach and there's two people watching him well he is technically talking to them he's more talking at them and there's a lot of just footage of them looking utterly disgusted and trying looking at the cameraman who's never seen as like is this guy for real and the results and um he follows uh, the the director donnelly follows this man around and includes footage of Tiffany interacting with this gentleman as well. And apparently none of that footage was sort of done with her permission either. It's all just sort of fly-on-the-wall material. And it's a very uncomfortable watch for a number of reasons. One, there's the obvious uh, factor of, I think one might say a slightly gawking factor, of discomfort at watching um, this man behave in the way he is. But there's also the sense, there's also a lingering question over 
how much is this man able to consent to sort of the way things have been edited how mm. uh, he's been involved in the process what he's get what is he getting out of it and it makes it a really for an autistic person it makes it a very unsettling experience because un- un- instead of something like um i am greta or the christine mcginnis documentary which we briefly brought up where there's a sense of you know capturing people in a multitude of moods in a multitude of expressions this is one single mood of perseverance and it's really unpleasant and you do wonder is this just what people with a camera who would look at autism film which mm-hmm. is not to say that's what everybody would do but it certainly raises questions about better understandings of autistic behavior having said that it is a 15 year old film so a lot has changed we would like to think in the proceed in the uh the time afterwards but it was one that I watched for this and found myself wanting to take a very long look in the mirror <laughs> afterwards, to say the least. So, yes, don't don't watch that. Maybe you should watch uh, Cannon Arm instead. Cannon Arm was the uh, documentary we uh, screened yes. at the Autism Through Cinema conference this year. And I thought it was great. That's a, de- that's a delightful film. Mm. That is absolutely lovely. That's a really fun, I'd almost say quite cheery film. Uh, about this about this guy <laughs> yeah. and his and his fascination with the games uh i got very into it by the end i'll be honest i really wanted him to succeed well yeah. ethan i don't think we have time for you to get into it now though <laughs> no that's understandable i think we've ran, ran although we've ran with close. that film we must give a little bit of a warning in that there's a lot of like flashing lights and sort of like uh yes. stroby effects <clears> and sort of like you know arcade machines zooming at the screen and all this sort of stuff in that film so i wondered a little bit while the, the subjects matter you know the the, the people within the, that film are neurodivergent and, and really interesting and fascinating it's wonderful to watch them sort of obsessing about their the, the thing that they really love doing but i did wonder if it was quite the right kind of style for um the people who might find that uh you know too much sensory information coming in kind of thing mm. it was borrowing that aesthetic i mean that was the yeah. whole point i think more of a problem might be the uh, self-injurious behavior depicted in it yes there was that as well wasn't there yeah, yeah. yeah. i think but, that would be more of the concern on my part i thought that but certainly an entertaining film i really oh, enjoyed it very much so yeah all right can i pitch one last question to you both Oh my, have we, we do we really have time? I've got one hour 20 on my... Oh, right. Well, maybe we don't. Okay. I've got, well, I've got one hour 30. But... <laughs> I'll I, I tell you what. I'll pitch this out to the, to the, to the listeners to think about. Um, what kind of an autism documentary would you like to see? I think that's the question that's posing around in my head now. You know, what has not been covered by documentaries and uh, in terms of autism and what sort of... It? Uh, Alex is pointing at himself. So basically anything that Alex has made uh, is the ones that we want to see. No, no, I, I'm literally trying to do this right now. I'm trying, this is the, it's more or less the project title. But I think it's something that, <laughs> I think it's something our listeners can think about. What would they like to see? What would be a good mm-hmm. thing to do? But anyway, let's let's wrap it up because it has been too long now. Um, but that was really interesting. What a great discussion. And thank you. Uh, thank you particularly to Anna Hjort-Gutter for giving us voice for, for us to watch because it was a fascinating film, really enjoyed it. And I would very hi- highly recommend people to, to, to have a look at it because it uh, really gets you thinking about all these, about these issues. But yeah, so thank you very much, Anna. And thank you to you too, to Ethan and Alex. It's been a great conversation. And thanks also to, to everyone listening. And we'll be back again shortly with another episode. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London. 
Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in.